Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives. This is our podcast about the ideas shaping the EBRD region and beyond. I'm uh, Sergey Gurif, EBRD's chief economist. Today we are discussing the relationship between the powers that be and those they govern. We are looking at the evolution of the social contract in the context of a specific region, the Middle East and North Africa, or MENA. With me to examine the subject is Shanta Divarajan, the chief economist for the World Bank for the region. Shanta, welcome to Pocket Economics. It is a pleasure to have you here. How has uh, the idea of a social contract been interpreted in the Middle Eastern uh, and North African countries in the past? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. The The social contract in the Middle East and North Africa region had a particular characteristic um, that was distinctive of the region, but surprisingly common among the countries of the region. And they consisted of the following features. One is that the state guaranteed jobs for university graduates. Secondly, the state provided health and education for free to everybody. And third, the state provided subsidies to Uh, for food and fuel to virtually everybody. Now, the other side of this contract was that the population, in order not to lose this largesse of the state, kept their voices quiet, and they tolerated a fair amount of repression and uh, uh, capture. To what extent this actually is related to what happened afterwards and why the discussion of social contract is so relevant for understanding of Arab Spring? Yeah, this is how we developed this idea because the Arab Spring presents a puzzle to economists like you and me, um, which is that for the 10 years before the revolutions, uh, the economic situation was actually quite good and improving, including the relatively high growth, declining poverty, and what is less well known is that inequality in the region was low and declining, especially in the Arab Spring countries. So we couldn't explain why there were revolutions in all of these countries and widespread protests until you realize that there was this implicit social contract since independence, and that contract was broken. That, that basically the state could no longer provide jobs, guarantee jobs for everybody. And as a result, the middle class in particular, who were the people who had worked hard, gotten their university degrees, and were hoping to get jobs, were, uh, their expectations were defeated. And that, I think, was what led to the frustration that then erupted in the Arab Spring. So in that case, uh, indeed, the main frustration was coming not from the very poor not from the very uh, left behind that sometimes we identify the rise of protest in the West, but rather from educated middle class, people who've invested a lot of time and effort in getting their university degrees and now finding that access to formal jobs, to public sector jobs, which are the good jobs in this region, was now denied. So what happened next? It's actually worse than that because not only was there access to public sector jobs uh, not not happening, but that the private sector was not creating enough jobs, particularly in the formal sector, to make up the difference. And this was happening just at the time when the youth bulge was peaking, because the number of young people entering the labor market was the highest ever, just at a time when there were neither public sector jobs nor private sector jobs. 
And the reason why there weren't private sector jobs was that in many of these countries, what we found was that the uh, private sector was captured by political elites who then gave protection to those industries where they had financial interests, and those industries then enjoyed monopoly power. They were, their prices were very high, which made it very difficult to create labor-intensive exporting industries. Uh, in Tunisia, for instance, the Ben Ali family had uh, invested in the transport sector, the telecommunications sector, and the banking sector. And as a result of that, these prices of these services were very high. So Tunisia couldn't develop a, a garment industry, for instance, or an electronics industry, which it could have done tremendously given its location, given its ex extremely skilled population. But th they were not competitive when your telecommunications prices were so high. Now, uh, the way you are describing this indeed suggests that this system was broken. It was not sustainable. As we would say in the Stein's law, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Why wouldn't governments understand that? Why wouldn't they change the social contract? Why wouldn't they try to improve the situation, open up the markets, uh, reduce barriers to entry, to provide uh, opportunities for creating jobs? Why do you think that happened? As we said earlier, the old social contract was actually delivering in many ways. For instance, it was reducing poverty. It was actually delivering basic services. You know, kids were all going to school. Uh, many of the childhood diseases had been eliminated. So this was in many ways a successful uh, experiment, and which makes it much harder to then uh, realize that underlying it is a really fragile apparatus. Uh, and I think th that was where the, the, the situation was, uh, that people didn't, see that things were as bad as they were since many of the indicators were so were so positive uh, at the same time i think the when things got a little out of hand governments would react by reinforcing the old social contract so if there was a disturbance somewhere they would increase public sector hiring just temporarily even though they couldn't afford it and even though it could actually undermine private sector growth in the future. Or they would increase the energy subsidies uh, just as a, way, as a palliative. So they were doing all these Band-Aid type mechanisms which actually made the situation worse. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD's podcast on how economic ideas help change people's lives. Get in touch with us at EBRD on Twitter and on Facebook, the hashtag Pocket Economics. I am Sergey Gurif, EBRD's chief economist, and today we are discussing the social contract in the Middle East and North African countries with Shanta Divarajan, the chief economist of the World Bank for this region. What is the way forward? What do you think uh, should happen, should be done uh, by the government, civil societies and businesses, and maybe by international community? First of all, I think it's fair to say that every country in the region is suffering from some kind of fragility. Either they're in civil war, as you said, uh, such as Yemen or Libya or Syria or Iraq, or they're neighbors of civil war countries where they're facing the repercussions, including a breakdown in investment and trade routes and uh, refugees, as in Jordan and, and Lebanon. Um, and uh, as a result of, and, and the region is facing terrorist attacks 
um, and not just the region, it's uh, other countries and other regions as well, are facing a huge increase in terrorism, which is also undermining investment and is particularly affecting tourism in the areas. So growth has basically collapsed in the region. Uh, what was used to be 5.5% growth is now about 2% growth, less than half of what it used to be. Uh, and so the, the region is facing a series of difficulties, uh, some of which seem like the solutions lie on the military front or the security front or maybe even uh, a religious front because some of the terrorist movements are claimed to be um, uh, religious uh, extremists. But we actually believe that the solutions lie in economics as well. Uh, because one thing we're finding, for instance, is that uh, the people who supply the most number of terrorists uh, to fight for Daesh or ISIS uh, tend to be uh, the countries with the highest male unemployment rate. So the same Any age cohorts or just? For the young people, for yeah. the young people, yeah. yes, 15 to yeah. 34 or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, and uh, so the same problem that we identified was what triggered the Arab Spring, uh, which was unemployment, not necessarily male, but just mm -hmm. unemployment, uh, seems to be also behind the, the surge in terrorism. And I think uh, unless we saw that problem, and, and the problem has gotten worse, incidentally, because of the f fall in growth and investment, unemployment has actually increased since the Arab Spring. Uh, unless we can address that problem directly and try to, to, to reduce the level of unemployment, we're not going to actually solve in any permanent way the widespread conflict and violence and terrorism that is plaguing the region. I think uh, one of the takeaways from what you just said is that the current problem are, in, to a great extent, the legacy of not uh, reforming the system for many, many years or not decades. That's how this uh, problem of persistent unemployment, especially among the young, has emerged. But now what is the way forward? What would you suggest as a new social contract for the region? Well, first, the way forward is a new social contract yeah. because many of the attempts of the way forward have been to try to reproduce the old social contract, which I don't think will work. But the new social contract has to be one where the state is not the employer, but is an agent that facilitates private sector job creation, particularly the formal sector. So this, and, and frankly, as we've seen in some of the cases like Tunisia, the state not only didn't facilitate private sector job creation, it actually impeded it with the crony capitalism that we uh, observed. So the state actually needs to turn that around and promote competition in domestic markets as a way of generating uh, jobs and growth in small and medium enterprises, which is sorely lacking. The other side, though, is that the state also has to reform the subsidy regime, because the subsidy regime is actually debilitating the rest of the economy and from creating jobs. Uh, for, for instance, uh, the diesel subsidies has led to a excessive depletion of water because diesel is what is used in water pumps and to extract, uh, uh, extract water. So the state could transform these subsidies, which, by the way, m are mostly going to the rich, not to the poor. They could transform them by saying, let's charge market prices for fuel and give cash transfers to poor people, and you can go all the way up to the middle class, uh, so that they can afford to buy 
fuel at those uh, market prices. So you are compensating those who need to be compensated, but not subsidizing the rich. And finally, I think on the other side of that, there has to be greater voice and accountability in the system. I mean, one of the reasons why we find that health and education services are so poor in the quality, not the access, access is fine, but the quality of students and test scores and things like that is very low in the region, is that teachers are absent something like 25-30% of the time, or doctors are absent in clinics about 30% of the time. And that's because they're not accountable to the student in the classroom or the patient in the clinic. But if we can change that around where teachers are actually paid if they show up and not paid if they don't show up, there might be a way to actually improve the quality of student learning and thereby actually reinforce that new social contract. Unfortunately, our time is up. If you're interested in finding out more, please visit ebrd.com. Please also share your thoughts with us at ebrd on Twitter and on Facebook. Visit iTunes, visit SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember that reviewing and rating Pocket Economics helps others to find it. Until next time, goodbye.